0: All right, tonight we are at the end of a very long series examining so many things in our own theologies and our own ideas. And so we've had this series called Examine Your Vision, where we focused on all these issues, where we've analyzed some of the biggest issues that trip people up within the church. So you can see where we've been. Look at all those up on the screen. It's kind of nice to be nearing the end of this series. Tonight, we're ending our series on kind of this examine your vision and all the places where Christians kind of miss each other by looking at places where we kind of misunderstand scripture. That's kind of the, the topic tonight. Now, we did this talk a while back when we were talking about witnessing. This is probably back in, I want to say, November of last year, where we were really wrestling with one aspect of scripture that I think Christians fall short on. And that is that Christians are very good about kind of paraphrasing Scripture. We spent some time talking about how Christians paraphrase Scripture without actually reading it or memorizing it. And I told you that there were some problems with that because the words are important. They were inspired, and they were written down in a way, and we spent a lot of time making sure that the texts that we read from are accurate, and they've been accurately translated, and they've been accurately copied, by the way. So for us to just be lazy and paraphrase, not so good. Tonight we're talking about a related topic, kind of a cousin to that, and that is when we actually have memorized some scripture, maybe, and we kind of just throw it out a little bit out of context, and the different meanings that can come out of it, All right, So that's kind of the idea, misunderstanding the use of scripture, even when we do actually quote it correctly. Here's some things I've just thrown up as ideas for you to think about. We have said this, and I mean we, not maybe this group, but we as a collective body of Christ, the church, have said this at one point or another about the Bible. And I think we've kind of made it a little bit uh, difficult for people to catch on to the Bible because maybe we didn't represent it for what it is correctly. Here's some things to look at. We've said to people, it's the only book you'll ever need. It's the only book you'll ever need. Sounds Christian to say that, doesn't it? It's the only book you'll ever need. And yet when somebody who's not a Christian picks it up and starts reading it, it's like, I don't know, I at least need a dictionary because there's some words in here I don't really get. Okay. We, we tell people it's the only book you'll ever need, period. I think that, that kind of sets up people, that kind of sets up some people sometimes for thinking, wow, there must be everything I ever need to know is in this book. And we know, of course, that there are places where the Bible might even be silent about some things, might even leave us wondering about some things. We've made it into the answer book for life, and I think that it is, but we've represented that every answer you'll ever need to everything is in there. And I think maybe a better way to say it sometimes is maybe the essential things that we need to know are in there, but there's definitely some things we don't know. It's easy to understand. Anybody come to Christ later in life and pick up the Bible and just start reading in Genesis and go... Oh, okay. Yeah, this makes sense. How about just what we tell people? When you see somebody come to Christ for the first time, you say, you should read one of the books of the Bible. What's a book we recommend to people to read? What? John. Book of John? That's like a, that was like the book, right? If you had one book that you would tell people to read, it would be the book of John. I don't know if you were just, I'd like to do this experiment. I'd like to find three or four people who've never read the Bible, give them the book of John, and quiz them later to see what they got out of it. By the way, I'm not saying that the the word, let me be careful. I'm not saying that the that God cannot speak to you through his word. Of course he can. I'm talking about what we have represented to say, "Hey, this is easy stuff. Just pick it up and it'll be easy to read." I know people have picked up the Bible the first few times and just thought, "I know I should be getting more out of this, but I'm not really sure I understand this." And wow, what if you landed in the middle of the Old Testament, you know, and just started reading Isaiah, for example. That's not easy to read. You're not even sure if the guy is lucid most of the time. Like, what's he talking about? You know, it doesn't sound right. Take up the book of Daniel. Seems like a good story until you get to the end. And all of a sudden you're like, dude, I'm not so sure I should trust the first part of the book. Like all of a sudden the dude went nuts on us towards the end. Like what happened? He's seeing a lot of weird stuff in his dreams, you know. So it's not sometimes so easy to read. And even if it's easy to read in terms of words, the meaning can sometimes be difficult. And when in doubt, just read it. You doubt something, having trouble with something, just read the Bible. The problem is you're not reading it enough. That's what it is. You just keep reading it, God will keep speaking to you, and it will all become clear. And I think you know that I'm kind of being a little facetious in that because we've seen debates, even in this group, about what it means. And we've even explored topics where we've admitted we don't always know what it means. And we have a little bit of doubt about how we're supposed to understand this. Here's what else we've done. We've cut it into pieces how many people, I, I'm the guiltiest of this, so I can say this clearly. That I don't even bring a Bible to church anymore. I don't have to. They're going to put it on the PowerPoint, aren't they? Yeah. They're going to show you the piece they're talking about. So never mind all the pieces around it, you know, never mind even carrying it. You know, 10 years ago, even, it was so popular to carry around the little zippered case. It had to be zippered because it's such an important book. You got to zipper it, right? You know, and, yeah. and it has a little handle, like it just seemed to be kind of weird that like God's word is like zippered in a pouch somewhere, you know, in a little handy toolbox you walk into church, you know. And then you had all these other things where you had the highlighters stuck in there, and then they came the leather-bound ones with all the cool engravings, you know. Pretty soon they're like these elaborate things. By the way, if you ever need a Bible, you know where to get one, right? The lost and found at any church probably has like 30 Bibles that nobody's claimed, you know. If you don't mind that it has somebody else's name engraved in it, sometimes it's a great way to get God's word for free. Okay, just a little tip there. Um, Today, we don't even carry it. We don't need to. I'm embarrassed to say that I'm in the same boat. I know that, like, why would I pick it out out of the car? Now, that doesn't mean I don't read it. But I have to tell you that I probably read it more online and over the web than I do out of the actual text itself. When in law school, we learned that there were so many cases out there that there was no way you could just go to the library and just start researching the books. You can do it. There's ways to do it. You pick up indexes and you can actually, before there were computers, people could search hundreds and hundreds of books by using indexes. Then when we were, of course, in a modern era, we've taken all of those texts and we've put them online so now you could find what you're looking for much faster. Anybody who's ever done research on a computer versus in a book knows that the book method is superior. Not superior in finding what you're looking for faster. It's superior in showing you what's really there. Because when you're zooming in on a search, you're looking for something like on a screen that's like having tunnel vision. This is how much you're seeing. And you're not even seeing the words around it. When you're flipping pages, you're looking and you go, oh, look how it's interesting how it all lays together. Like, look at the context. And tonight, if we learn one word, it's going to be context. So we've almost done ourselves a disfavor by cutting into pieces. We watch the PowerPoint. We see this, the, the words on the screen. They flash in front of us. We have no idea of what's around them. We have no idea where they fall into the book. If you ask most people in a church to open up to Philemon, they'd be like, eh? You know, searching for the table of contents. Or if you're happy enough to have one of the zippered pouches, maybe with the tabs, you know, evidencing <laughs> evidencing your true stature in the kingdom, then you'll just look for Philemon and flip over there, right? We sought to tell people what it really meant to say. The good pastor is the one who can open up the scriptures and say, this is what it really says in Greek and Hebrew. This is what it was meant. This is what the context was of the cultural issues that were around it. We're good at examining and interpreting and dissecting. That's another way we've cut it into pieces. We tell people, it says this, but let me tell you what was really going on and we break it down into its pieces and don't forget that the word was never in pieces it was part of a whole. In fact most people don't know that the Bible, the scriptures didn't have verses or chapters until much much later. I mean we're talking within a few hundred years that we added verses and it was more than a thousand years after that they even broke it into chapters. So that was kind of our creation to dissect, compartmentalize, and understand scripture in different ways. We explained away its difficulties. If we found tough passages, we explained to people why they were not really that tough. We just, you have to understand them better, and we made it that way. We analyzed it to death. We've analyzed scripture in some ways that it's lost its meaning. And we turned it into a game of telephone. What do I mean by that? What is a game of telephone? You guys know how the game works. One person says it to another person, and by the time you go around three or four people, the word is changed. Well, imagine all of our people who don't have a copy of the scriptures that they're really reading on their own, who are picking out words that somebody's throwing up on a PowerPoint, who are hearing a pastor tell them what the word really means, and then repeating it to a friend who then repeats it to another friend. And by the time it gets down the road, like it's so different than the actual scripture itself, or even what it meant to say, because somebody was interpreting it every step of the way. By the way, that includes many times the pastor who's preaching the sermon is adding their spin and their interpretation. I mean, Pastors are people too. They sometimes have their own ideas of what it means and sometimes that's not always right. Or they're using it to justify a certain position that may be not fully defensible, but you hear it and you repeat it and the next thing you know people are talking about it as if that was really true. So that's ways that I think we've made the Bible difficult to use and we've taken away some of its effectiveness. We've kind of missed the point about what it's really about. I put up on the screen this kind of idea about context. Many of us have done a good job of memorizing scripture. I think more of us need to do it. All right, That was the earlier talk when we were talking about the power of God's word. Don't paraphrase it. Quote it right. The words actually have meaning. All right, Let's not cheapen the words themselves. And some of us are good about memorizing scripture. I think one of the things we've lost in the church in our non-denominational movements is like any emphasis on Bible memorization. When I was in like a Presbyterian church growing up when I was a little kid, I was in Mighty Memorizers, okay? And we got like stars and gifts or whatever it was for memorizing Scripture. I mean, even as a little kid, never mind that you'd memorize like an entire psalm, say it from memory so you can get the ice cream and then forget you ever knew it, right? But at least it stuck. It was at least a good effort to memorize Scripture. We have like no emphasis on memorization. That's not so good. So more of us should be doing that. But even if we memorize scripture, what's the best way to use it? That's really what we're talking about. If you have a verse in mind, how do you use that verse? Take a look at this one. John 10.10. You guys know that one of my good friends, this is his favorite verse. In fact, for two or three years that he ran the college group, this is about the only verse we ever studied. Every every talk had John 10.10 in it. Okay, here's what John 10, 10 says. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Who is I? Jesus. Jesus. I have come so that they can have life and have it to the full. The thief comes. Who's the thief? The devil. Is it the devil? Yeah. Let's look at the verse in context. Jesus has just finished rebuking the Pharisees because he's healed a blind man and they're questioning whether Jesus really healed him, whether the blind man was a liar. They're questioning his authority. And he's just finished, by the way, in chapter 9, saying that because you say we see, you remain blind. You people are the spiritually blind ones who are trying to lead a nation while you yourselves are blind. And this blind man now can see better than all of you because he calls me Messiah. We go right into chapter 10. There's no break in the scripture. We put the break there. And he says in 10, starting verse 1, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. So he's telling us who the thief and the robber is. Somebody who comes in the other way. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Who's the guy calling the sheep in this example here? What's the right answer in every church class? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Therefore, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. And all who came before me were thieves and robbers who came before him then in this context who are the thieves and robbers the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders. false teachers maybe people who were not sent from God alright and then he goes on to say but the sheep did not listen to them I am the gate whoever enters in the gate will be saved but will come in and go out and find pasture the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you see that when you look at the context of the scripture, we're so comfortable talking about John 10.10 10 and all of us. I mean, by the way, myself included, probably, if you'd put me out there without reading the context, I would have said, the thief is the devil. Sounds like a good way to saying it. But what would we do there? We like zeroed in tunnel vision on one verse. And we're looking at it thinking, hmm, without anything else around it, the thief being the devil would be a good guess. Now, I'm not saying the devil didn't inspire false teachers. I'm not saying that he didn't get into the hearts of the Pharisees. But who is he really talking about? He's just finished rebuking them, telling them they're blind and leading people astray. And he goes into this crazy example of sheep and gate and shepherd. And then he tells them the people who came before are the thieves and robbers, plural, and they did not listen to them. That's why context is so important. Here's another one. In Matthew, Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Just leave that by itself. I've heard that quoted in this group, this verse. Here's a question of context. In Luke 22:34, 34, we have this. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And we know that that happened. Does that mean that when Jesus gets to heaven, he's not going to acknowledge Peter? I mean, he said, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Is Jesus just kidding? Is it conditional? Peter does it. He even tells him that you're going to do it. And he does it not once, three times. So what does Jesus to do then? Does it say anywhere in the verse in Matthew, except Peter, or except if I predict it early? What does that mean? How do you put them together? You don't even have to answer it. I'm going to tell you that one of the reasons this is a difficulty for us is because if we just quoted this and made it stand as an absolute statement by itself without reference to the context around it, we would have a difficulty here saying, yeah, I guess he's going to have to say, while we were down there, Peter kind of screwed up a few times. I, I really can't acknowledge him. Now some of you are going to say, hey, well he forgave Peter, that's okay. But he can forgive anybody. Why would he make the statement? He can forgive anybody. Because the proper context of this statement about whoever is going to acknowledge me is being framed by a story that's going on in Matthew. Jesus is sending the disciples out. He's giving them instructions on how to go from town to town. What they're supposed to do when they get there. What they're supposed to say and how they're supposed to say it. And he's giving them specifics and he adds in there, whoever acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge him. Whoever disowns me, I'll disown him. He's not talking about a denial like Peter's. He's talking about an ultimate decision in your lifetime to forsake his claim and say, not true. Don't believe it. Don't believe in that guy. Don't care about him. So there's a difference. But it's tempting to take the top part of this and just use it. We were talking about can you lose your salvation and we're struggling with some of those issues and somebody could say, "Hey, it says here." Yeah, but in what context? Why was he speaking it? What was the purpose? Because that might tell us whether it fits our situation or not. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13:8 says, "Love never fails." But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. This verse by itself is used as justification for the fact that tongues and gifts of prophecy no longer exist in, in our midst. So there are whole churches that are divided about, are the gifts of the Spirit, including the gifts of tongues and prophecy, still active in our church today? And if you ask people who say there are no such gifts active, where they get that idea, they'll point to this verse. And say, after talking about love and love and love throughout 1 Corinthians 13, there's this section that says, gifts of prophecy will be done away with and tongues will cease. The question is, when? If you look at this verse, it just tells you that they will end. When? Again, a question of context. And by the way, nobody in this group's ever cited this verse because probably nobody of you have really read 1 Corinthians that deeply to find this, okay? But here's the full context. Paul answers the question about when they'll cease. He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Who's the perfect? Christ, Jesus. In other words, Paul is telling us, when he comes back again, the partial, because we're saying here, we now know in part and prophesy in part. So when he comes back, then the partial will be done away. And he goes on to say, for now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also fully known. Here's another one that's been thrown out in our group a number of times, James 2.24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow, that's kind of a zinger if you just threw that up on the screen by itself. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. I mean, I think most of us in this room probably feel our, our theology is, if you had to pick between faith and works to justify you, and I put that in quotes, I think most of us would pick faith. So what on earth is James talking about? This is one of those things where understanding some context helps us out. Again, because it seems like he's saying something where you think, man, Paul and James must not have seen eye to eye. And that might be true. They probably disputed some theology among them about trying to get the theology down correctly. But is he actually saying that all this by faith alone stuff, by grace alone stuff that Paul was talking about is just not there? A man is justified by works? If you just go back a few verses, you realize what James is talking about. And you start to realize that James is not even talking about exactly the same thing that Paul is talking about. He picks an example that gives us a big clue. And that's what I like about our Bible, is it's filled with stories of real people because they provide the context. He cites Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And a result of the works, faith was perfected. Then he goes on to say, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. A lot of people have debated what Paul means by justification and what James means by justification. One of the best explanations is that they probably weren't talking about exactly the same thing. The way that Paul uses justification is different. We talked about that a number of weeks ago when we talked about salvation in our first series. How Paul uses the word justification. James uses it in a different context. But you see the same word and they sound similar and you think, aha, there must be some sort of conflict. Or I'm going to throw this verse out there and it's going to mean something. I'm not saying we can't wrestle with it. What I'm saying is, it seems that James is saying that our faith, which already exists, is perfected through the works that come from that faith. That's why he says that faith without works is dead. He's not saying that you can't have the faith, just kind of a useless faith. But if you look at it carefully, he's saying, was not Abraham our father justified by works? He's talking about a person who already had faith. Abraham didn't come to faith by sacrificing Isaac. When did Abraham come to faith? Anyone remember? Anyone read the Old Testament? When he picked up and followed God. God said, move, follow me, declare me your God. I'll make a mighty people out of all of your descendants. And Abraham said, I'm in. That's when Abraham had the faith to move. Now God tested that faith by having him do this. And James is saying that. Take the word justified and replace it with perfected, the way he does at the end almost. Was not Abraham our father perfected? Was not his faith perfected by works? The faith was already there. So I'm just using these examples to show you that context is important. Why am I driving this point home? Because in our discussions in this group, we need to be careful in the way we use scripture and make sure we understand the context around it. Because it's easy to hunt and peck, Especially with all the Bible tools there are now, throw in a couple search terms into a web page, get a bunch of verses that match what you're saying, grab your mouse, pick them up, throw them on the screen, and say, Here are some verses that support what I'm saying. That's cheap because the Bible wasn't written as a collection of verses. You guys ever heard this praise song, Lift Jesus Higher? There's a praise song, it's like, Lift Jesus Higher. You see all the people in the congregation raising their hands like this Lift Jesus Higher comes from this verse in the Bible, John 12, 32. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Lift Jesus higher. What does it mean when you lift Jesus higher? Sounds good. Any Christian song that has lift? Sounds good. Like lift. <laughs> I, I think it means put Jesus before yourself, like me making God. Yeah. Put him ahead of you. Okay. Anyone else? What's a synonym for lift Jesus up? Exalt. Exalt. Sounds like a good synonym. You know what it means in John 12, 32? It means crucify him. If I be lifted up from the earth, like lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to me. Do you think the people who wrote the song read the context? You know, you got a whole, whole group of people going, lift him up. You know, it's like you think like, like Barabbas is right next to him. And they're like, lift him up. What you're saying is crucify him. I will crucify him. Yeah, lift him up. Lift Jesus higher. Now, let me tell you, in truth, God knows what we mean. God is not fooled by the fact that most of us don't know the context. God still honors the fact that somebody read these words to mean, if I am exalted, I will draw all men unto me. And it's true that in the ancient languages, lifted up and exalted could almost be the same word, but they're not in this context. Jesus actually uses the same word elsewhere when he's saying, I will be lifted up. I mean, he's saying, I will be crucified. The word implies I will be hanged is the closest connotation. Do you see why context becomes important? Now, I don't think God is up there going, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, he is still blessed and honored that there are people who are intending to exalt him through this song. But it also just kind of as a side note reminds me of how often we don't even know what the words mean to most of the Christian songs. As long as they have some basic words like rock, you know, like. Lift, you know, all, you know, some, just some words that like, as soon as we hear them, glory, like whatever those words are, we're just going to like, you know, you know. All right. Here's another praise song you've probably heard, or actually you've even heard this spoken from the beginning of a service. A lot of churches will start off their services with these words. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What does that mean? What does it mean when you say this is the day that the Lord has made? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What does it mean? Just enjoy the day. Yeah, it's a nice day. It's time you should have gone to the beach instead of coming to church today. You know, or it means God created a beautiful day for us to worship. Isn't that what most pastors mean? Mm, Lord, thank you for the sunshine today. Right? Mm, right. You know, thank you, thank you that we live in Southern California where it never rains and we steal water from other states because we don't have any rain and we sprinkle green lawns. Okay, is that what this verse says? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let me show you the full context of the verse. It's from Psalm 118 20 to 24. This is the gate of the Lord. Hear that gate language again? This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What is the day? Is it Sunday? Is it a sunny day? What is it? It's the day of salvation and judgment. It's the day that, that he has given us the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. Who was the cornerstone that was rejected? It's a prophecy that's fulfilled in our gospels. That Christ is the stone that was rejected and he becomes the cornerstone. So that this day which he has made is the day of salvation. It's like a talking about a specific day that's to come and rejoicing and thanking God for that day that it is to come. But we picked it up and thought, hey, this sounds like something good to say at the beginning of a service. Are you telling me that I can't wake up in the morning and say I'm going to rejoice for the Lord's made the day? No, I'm just saying that you can't cite that verse. You see, the, the context is important to make sure that we understand what that particular verse says. That doesn't mean that you can't wake up and rejoice in the Lord. That doesn't mean that you can't stand up in front of a congregation and say, today's a great day and we're alive and the Lord made us, we should be thankful. What I'm saying is we need to be very careful that we don't take scripture out of context and then say, cite Psalm 118. Because Psalm 118 is talking about a day of salvation and judgment. It's talking about a specific day. If we take the Lord's words that he intended for a reason and then use them for the reason we want them, we won't stop. This one might be innocent where you stand up and go, let's rejoice in the name of the Lord today. And you take the words right out of scripture. Great. But if you're citing and saying that's what these things mean, it's like after while, it's like, well, what else are we going to take out of context? Just because we zero in on the words, they sound good. and We go, that's what we want them to mean. Here's some things to look at. And I'm going to really underline this word assume up here. Just some tips for us. Number one, don't assume that you or others know what a passage means. I underline the word assume because this is a very dangerous statement. I'm not saying that we can't know what a passage means. I'm just throwing this out as a caution. Many times we're pretty convinced of what a passage means and we miss that we may have heard it from somebody else who told us that's what it means. One of the articles I was researching was by Jim Baker, you guys remember him? He was in the Praise the Lord Ministries. He was the one who was married to Tammy Baker, the one with the big, huge eye, eyelashes. And he preached on TBN for many, many years before he was disgraced for, I think, it was stealing money from the church, or whatever he was doing. But his testimony was that he believed that he was preaching these doctrines right out of the Bible. And it wasn't until he actually read the Bible that he realized that many of the verses he had used didn't say what he thought they said. The reason was, is in his fast-paced ministry, he was just throwing out verses and making people feel good. And it wasn't until he was sitting in a prison cell, reading the Bible book by book, that he started to understand that what he thought those verses meant were not really maybe what Jesus was saying to him. I had the same experience recently. It's one of the reasons I think it'd be great to do a study of the book of Matthew, just picking a book, because it's been so long since any of us have actually opened a book from the beginning and read it straight through to get the context, to see where the verses fall in line with everybody else, and, by the way, to remember that many of those things are not exactly the way we remember them. They're much tougher sometimes than we remember them. So I'm not saying we can't know what a, a verse means. I'm just saying that just suspend your understanding for a moment. Don't assume it. Read it like you were reading it for the first time, and then read it with context in mind. Number two, read the verses which surround the passage. Heck, read the entire chapter. Go on a rampage of craziness and read the whole book to understand. I mean, Remember, the author is writing a book. What is the book? Sometimes it's a letter. Sometimes it's a history. I mean, they weren't writing verses and chapters. We did that. They were just writing. And the same person is writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Read the whole book. And then ask yourself, like, how does that passage fit? into the theme of this chapter of this book. How does it fit in there? Look at the genre of the book. Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it law? Is it a letter? Is it apocalyptic literature? Like, what exactly am I reading? Because maybe then we'll understand some of the words. I think number four is the best one that I'd like to leave you with. Remember that the Bible is not a collection of quotable wisdom with just a bunch of filler in between. You see, you could go to the Barnes and Noble and get one of those like famous quote books or get one of those like books of wisdom and like every line in there has some really cool saying in it. Some of them you could use for speeches or some of them you could use to justify your positions. There's some really great stuff. You just think so-and-so said this. Wow, that was a really wise thing to say. Our Bible is so much deeper than that. And it stands alone among many books in being this deep. All of its wisdom, all of its quotable quotes, if you will, are in the context of stories that have happened to real people that are real history that went down. And they were the story of God intervening in a people from the beginning, from the moment he formed the nation of Israel and moved Abraham and all the way down probably until the fulfillment through his son, the Messiah and all the different people he worked with, these things have a context. And it's good for us. Because if you just saw different verses sometimes, you would have to ask yourself, like even when we looked at James, he referenced Abraham. We know who Abraham is. We have a whole history of who he was and what he did. He's not just making a reference to some guy we never heard of. We can go back and read the story and appreciate James's commentary on Abraham by understanding Abraham better and saying, how was Abraham justified? Who was Noah? Why did he do what he did? So we have these real stories that are there for context. Even the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament are in the context of the book of Acts. We know who this guy is. We know what he did. We know what the early church was doing. So remember that it's not just a book of quotations with a bunch of like things thrown in, where we can kind of go down and go, oh, that's a great quote. Oh, I'd like to use that somewhere. We need to use the context around it because that's how God inspired the Bible. He didn't say, all right, we'll just put together a group of sayings and then you guys will have them. Or here's a group of truths for you just to carry around. He gave us the full story. And that's the part that I'm really trying to hammer home is let's know the story. Let's know the context. Let's know all the things that are around it because then when we're encountering difficult statements, we'll know why Jesus was responding the way he did. So we got some work to do in the next coming months. You're going to see some of it in our series on spiritual gifts, in our series on finding God's will, all these kind of upcoming series. I kind of wanted to close our series on examining your vision by saying, we've looked at a lot of other places the church does some weird things that we disagree with or that we ourselves do strange that we need to examine. But this one place I think we all could use a little bit of kind of prepping on is let's make sure that we don't fall into the temptation of our electronic age and dissect the Bible into little pieces because it's so easy to do now. You don't even have to open the thing. You can just go search online and find what you're looking for instead of what God's looking for you to know. All right? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you uh, preserved the Scriptures for our benefit. And I just want to thank you for even having just... A small tiny part of the truth that you as Lord have. And the fact that you imparted with us just this piece so that we might know you and have the privilege of that is something that we don't often even consider a privilege or something that we should be thankful for. But Lord, the scriptures are truth directed by you and given to us. May we become serious students of your scriptures and use them, Lord, in the manner in which you gave them to us. Keep us from falling into laziness and temptation to just dissect these scriptures into truisms rather than your holy word and your holy truth. Pray these things in your name. Amen.